And some of you may have uh, remember the story of James Damore, who was a Google software engineer. He made the news because he <coughs> distributed a memo internally in Google uh, that was saying there are natural and biological differences between men and women that might actually explain why we don't have as many women in tech as we do men. And uh, his memo was uh, labeled an anti-diversity screed by many. Uh, he was uh, chastised and criticized. Uh, one of the things he also mentioned in the memo was that, unfortunately, there was a culture which tended to uh, push against dissenting voices and cause people to be afraid to speak out with uh, beliefs and opinions that weren't part of orthodoxy. And Google said, you're exactly right, and so we're going to fire you. And that's what ended up happening. They let him go. And the uh, <clears throat> Google's VP of diversity, in her official reply to the memo, stated... Part of building an open, inclusive environment means fostering a culture in which those with alternative views, including different political views, feel safe sharing their opinions. But that discourse needs to work alongside the principles of equal employment found in our code of conduct, policies, and anti-discrimination laws, and that's why this was out of bounds. And there are several interesting parts of this story, including, I think, the, the kind of hypocritical view that you need women in the workplace in order to get diversity, and yet there's no difference between men and women. And so how can you have diversity if there's no difference? Um, but I want to just focus in on, on how this, in many ways, pictures our understanding of tolerance and intolerance in our day. And the general situation in our day <clears throat> is that we have certain beliefs and views that are celebrated. Uh, people emphasize these things, people talk about them, uh, they label them as, as things we want to promote in society, things like working hard in school, taking care of children, uh, being responsible. And so these are things everyone should say, this is good, we want to support it. And then other positions, we'd say, hey, we differ on this, but it's fine, Every, you know, your position's good and my position's good. So, so I think things like diet choices generally uh, you have some people who are kind of hardcore, but generally, hey, you're vegan, you're keto, you're, you know, uh, low carb, uh, you're gluten free. Hey, whatever works for you, glad it works for you. I found something that works for me and let's, you know, just get along on these kinds of things. Your diet choice is good. My diet choice is good. And then other positions are outright rejected. People say there's no place for this in modern society. Uh, they shake their head. You know, how could someone still think like that? I'm shocked that this could still happen today. Uh, we don't want to allow these kinds of wrong ideas or people in society. So racism is a, is a big thing. A sexual abuse, a child sacrifice, cannibalism. These are the kinds of things that if you say, hey, I am pro these things, people want nothing to do with you. They want to see you fired from your job. Then I think we probably have ideas that we say, you know what, it really doesn't really matter what you say one way or the other. Um, we just, these are indifferent issues. What's your favorite flavor of ice cream? Well, who really cares, right? Which is the best Star Wars movie? Who really cares? Who's better, Michigan or Ohio State? Who really cares, right? These are things that don't really matter. And we can have debates and discussions about them. But if you disagree, we're not upset. It's fine. We can move along even if you're wrong on these things. It's because Penn State is obviously better than all of them. Right. Now, what this means is that if you are really wrong about something important, you're just excluded from society. You, you can only be wrong about 
unimportant things. Uh, you can be different and, and right, but you can only be wrong about unimportant things. And what's missing in this way that society tends to work is what we historically have called tolerance. And that's because the idea of tolerance has shifted. I have a note here that, that much of what I'm saying in the next part, I, uh, I think I'm indebted to D.A. Carson's book, The Intolerance of Tolerance. I remember I read this years ago, took down some notes and shaped them in different ways, and I can't remember now which is his and which is mine, and I've never gone back to try to figure it out. And so if it's something good, he probably gave me the idea. If it's something bad, I probably threw something in, but I can't delineate now uh, which is which. So just be aware of that. So how did we get here? How do we get to this new understanding of tolerance? Well, the old understanding of tolerance included disapproving something. In fact, that's, you had to have that in order to have tolerance. Uh, if, if I came up to you and I said, hey, would you want to go to the opera with me? And you say, well, I guess I could tolerate that. I wouldn't say, oh, I'm, you know, this has been your dream from childhood then, right? I would say, well, obviously, you're not really thrilled about the idea, but you're willing to go along anyway. Uh, you know, word of advice, don't go to your wife and say, I tolerate you, right? Because <laughs> uh, that's not saying, hey, I love you. That's saying there are things I dislike, but I'm willing to overlook them. <clears throat> and that's really what tolerance meant. Tolerance meant you disagreed, even strongly with something, but you wouldn't use coercion. You wouldn't fight the person. You wouldn't try to throw them in jail. Uh, you wouldn't try to socially ostracize them to suppress the person or the idea. You might think this is a foolish idea, but in a healthy society, there is freedom of speech and people have the right to be wrong. And so they would point to a, a quote that people say Voltaire said, but there's no indication he ever said it. Um, I disapprove of what you say, but I would defend to the death your right to say it. That was tolerance. What is tolerance now? Now, to be intolerant is to say, I have the truth. And to be intolerant is to say, you are wrong. So as before, I was a tolerant person if I said, you're wrong, but I'm not going to fight you. I'm not going to try to throw you in prison. I'm not going to try to make you lose your job. I think you're really, really wrong, and here's the reasons why. But I'm a tolerant person. Now, if I say that, I'm an intolerant person. Because I have said, you're wrong. And it's not allowed to tell other people they are wrong. And so some quotes to kind of see this borne out. In society, Leslie Moore is a professor emeritus of his philosophy at the University of Ottawa. It's a famous sentiment. Our idea is that to be a virtuous citizen is to be one who tolerates everything except intolerance. And intolerance there meaning telling someone else they're wrong. The United Nations Declaration of Principles on Tolerance from 1995 included this statement. Tolerance involves the rejection of dogmatism and absolutism. What's dogmatism? This is the truth. These are things you must believe. What is absolutism? This is something that everyone must believe. They say, if you're going to be tolerant, you can't have that. You can't actually say this is the truth. You can actually say everyone must believe this. That makes you an intolerant person. Or some of you may remember a few years ago when Russell Vogt was uh, having hearings to be appointed to the deputy director of the Office of Management and Budget. Vogt is a graduate of Wheaton. And a few years before that at Wheaton, there was a professor who made this big deal about the Christmas season that she was going to be wearing the hijab to demonstrate her solidarity with Muslims because Christians and Muslims worship the same God. And vote, 
wrote in part in response saying, well, Muslims do not simply have a deficient theology. They do not know God because they have rejected Jesus Christ, his son, and they stand condemned. And so in this hearing, Bernie Sanders, our good tolerant senator, brought up this issue and said this, in my view, the statement made by Mr. Vogt is indefensible. It is hateful. It is Islamophobic, and it is an insult to over a billion Muslims throughout the world. This country, since its obsession, since its inception, has struggled, sometimes with great pain, to overcome discrimination of all forms. We must not go backwards. And so Vote wasn't saying, hey, let's go out and throw all Muslims in jail. Vote wasn't saying, hey, you know, let's, let's try to start bombing all Muslims. Let's you know, eliminate Islam from the world. He was simply saying they don't really know God, and therefore they stand condemned before God. But that was an intolerant statement, according to our current understanding of tolerance. That was discriminatory and hateful. What helped lead us here? And there's two things that I think contributed to this view. The first is an increasing adoption of relativism and a certain form of relativism. There was an older form of relativism that said something like this. There is truth, but we can't necessarily always know it. And so stories that people give about this, Nathan the Wise and the Rings, uh, that's a story about a king who had a ring that allowed him to govern and to rule, and he passed that down to his heir, and he had three different sons, and at different times, to each of the sons, he told them, I'm going to give you the ring. Then he died, and they all found out he gave them a ring, but they don't know which one's the right ring. And so what are they supposed to do? And so they asked Nathan the wise, and Nathan says, well, your father obviously loved you. He gave each of you the ring. And so each of you should believe that you have the ring and act accordingly. And basically was using that to say, this is how Jews, Muslims, and Christians should interact with each other. Each of you believe God gave you this message. Each of you believe it's right. And so live in that way. We can't really know which is the real ring. We can't really know which is the real religion. Uh, so just, you know, believe it's out there. Uh, or, the idea that you found a stone or something in a dark cave. You look at it, you, you, it's so dark, you can't figure out, is this a pearl or is this a stone? And so you can't really know because it's too dark right now. This is an older kind of view of relativism. This is how we think about religions. Uh, one religion is true, but we don't necessarily know which one. So let's not fight about it. And so this understanding we tolerate because we're not able at this time to determine the truth. Today... We no longer say there is a truth. We just can't figure it out. We say there is no truth. And so we've moved to a fully relativistic view of tolerance. And so now we tolerate because there is no truth. No view can be wrong because no view can actually fully be right. There's no truth by which we can evaluate these things. A second aspect of society that has also contributed to this is a rise in secularism. And we tend to think of secularism as a complete denial of religion. But really, the kind of secularism that has dominated our society uh, has, has, in a sense, just pushed religion to the sides. It's pushed religion to the periphery. Such that now, uh, it's fine for you to be a religious person, but that's a very limited part of your life. 
That's maybe what you do on Saturday or Sunday, the day that you worship. When you go to church, you pray in your private life, you have these things. But the moment you step into the public square, your religion is meaningless. And that's a very different understanding of how religion has functioned and how religion still functions in most of the world. That religion includes every aspect of life. It's, it's woven into every aspect of life. But in our perspective, we tend to say, no, religion is just this private aspect of a, a certain thing that maybe is helpful for you, beneficial for you, meaningful for you in this aspect, but you cannot carry it to anything else that you have. So believe whatever you want in your private life, just don't live it out in society. So you're a doctor. You personally think abortion is wrong because you have religious faith. That's fine. You still need to do abortion because now you're in the public realm. Uh, you're a baker and you personally are opposed to gay marriage. That's fine, but you've still got to make cakes to celebrate it because now you're in the public square and we've moved beyond your personal beliefs. And so these kinds of views have led to this perspective of tolerance. What are some problems with this new tolerance? Well, one problem is there's no basis for us to really evaluate ideas. Even under the historic understanding of tolerance, even if we said, I think you're wrong, but I'll defend to the death your right to say it, there were some views that we said, uh, you know, it doesn't really matter if you're wrong here. This is something we can't let you champion. Like genocide. Uh, we generally wouldn't say, hey, it's fine for you to call for the murder of a whole group of people. This is perfectly fine in polite society. We'd say, well, no, that kind of goes over a line. But how do we know if anything goes over a line now? Because there's no truth. There's no way for us to really know this is so bad, it should not be allowed. And the standards seem to be one of two things, as far as I can see. One is the majority of people believe this, or at least the majority of the people we care about believe this. And now that we've changed our mind on this, you need to change your mind too. And so five years ago, certain you might be able to say belief A is fine, but enough people have moved now to say that belief A is evil. And if you still think belief A is fine, you're wrong. So this issue of gay marriage, for example, it was fascinating to me. Even just this week, um, uh, some of you may follow politics. The Speaker of the House just finally got a new Speaker of the House. And uh, there was actually a writer for National Review, which is a conservative magazine, who was upset that the Speaker of the House had taken, op had, had taken a position in opposition to same-sex marriage. I'm like, well, wait a minute. I thought that was a conservative position. And it was, apparently, as of you know, a year ago or so. But now, polite society has moved past that. So that now it's a hindrance if you, are, you know, want to be in politics and hold to that position. Whereas in 2012, Barack Obama ran on the platform of being opposed to same-sex marriage. And so within 10 years... It's moved from, well, how would you possibly think otherwise and be in favor of it to how could you possibly think otherwise and be against it? And, and so now this is how we figure out what's true. Enough people in polite society have made this decision. Or the other option is you've offended someone. You've hurt their feelings. You, you've caused them to feel scared or afraid. And as long as they're not a white male wasp, we care about that. And so you cannot cause people like this to be hurt or offended or afraid. That's how we figure out what's right or wrong. But if that's the case, how do we know that tolerance itself is a good thing? 
Why is it good to be a tolerant person? We can't even figure that out if there actually is no truth. Second problem, it condemns people rather than ideas. That the discussions often very quickly move from this is an idea, let's think about this idea, let's reason through it, let's, let's figure out which, which idea is better, to, well, you're a hateful, bigoted person. You're a racist. You're a homophobe. And because you are that, I really don't have to care at all what you say, because anything you say can't be good or valid because you're a racist, bigoted homophobe. And so what have we done? We've, we've moved beyond a consideration of ideas to simply condemning persons without ever considering ideas. Because that's what subjective truth is. If there is no objective truth, there's no way for us to actually objectify ideas and think about them. The idea is tied to us. It's subjective. It's my idea. It's my belief. And therefore, there is no way, in a sense, to separate me from that. And so inevitably, I think, falls back with, to that kind of a, of a push. Thirdly, it trivializes everything. It trivializes it in at least two ways. One way is... Since the only way for you to actually be wrong about something and me not to have to like not be your friend anymore is if what you're wrong about isn't that big of a deal. It makes us treat a lot of things as if it doesn't really matter. We can disagree on these things because they're unimportant. Um, but it also ended up trivializing everything because if there is no truth, then nothing ultimately matters. Why does it care? Why do we care whether or not someone believes anything? And I wonder if in some ways the level of outrage and vitriol people have for, for some issues is in a sense a means of trying to convince themselves that something actually matters in this world. That, that perhaps the fact that we've said there is no truth, there's no meaning, there's no purpose. That if I can get really upset about this thing, that that somehow helps me to feel as if there is meaning and purpose. Helps me to feel as if there is something that ultimately matters. And yet, unless we actually know there's truth, there's no reason to even be tolerant. It's a quote from B.B. Warfield. We are not tolerant of known or suspected truth. True tolerance comes into play only when we are confronted with what we recognize as error. And this is the reason why there can be no real tolerance in a mind which has no strong convictions and no firm grasp on the truth. Fourth, it opens the door to totalitarianism. If the truth doesn't govern us, what will govern us? Might. Power. And so if you can impose your beliefs on others, then why not? And one of the problems with this is, usually totalitarian movements don't stop where people think they will stop. Maybe you've seen this kind of meme before. You know, when I supported the leopards eating people's face party, I never thought that leopards would eat my face. The idea being, if you start promoting, hey, anyone who believes wrong things should be removed from society, don't be shocked when you get removed from society. Because you've now set the standard. You've now said, this is how we treat people. And it's likely going to come back on you. Fifth, it produces defeater beliefs, uh, defeater beliefs in particular against Christianity. Uh, because Christianity claims to have the truth, and Christianity claims that you are wrong and are condemned, like a Rosa Volt, and it makes evangelism or proselytization seem distasteful in our culture, um, so that now traditional Christianity is viewed as an intolerant religion. 
Sixth, it destroys the opportunity to be corrected or hear contrary opinions. I think this is a helpful point by uh, John Stuart Mill. The peculiar evil of silencing the expression of an opinion is that it is robbing the human race, posterity as well as the existing generation, those who dissent from the opinion still more than those who hold it. If the opinion is right, they are deprived of the opportunity of exchanging error for truth. That's a good thing, right? Are, are you right in everything you believe? Probably not. And so why wouldn't you want someone to be able to come along and correct you? But if it's wrong, they lose what is almost as great a benefit. The clearer perception and livelier impression of truth produced by its collision with error. And, and you've probably had this experience. You have a certain belief, you wrestle with counter-arguments, and you come out with a stronger and more defined right belief. Because you had to consider it in opposition to counter-arguments. Because you had to consider the alternative and wrestle through that. I think there is value in that. This view, new view of tolerance removes that value. And then finally, it actually promotes intolerance. So there's an a article I, I, I link there at the bottom of the kind of hypocritical tolerance. I'll gladly accept everyone who agrees with me is essentially what we come up with. And I think in particular, he, he's very insightful in saying the way we tend to tolerate is we tolerate those who agree with us or those that disagree with us that we don't really interact with at all. And so the, the kind of example he gives is the, you know, we'll take, he, he views it people who tend to be on the progressive liberal side of politics and culture. That they are very accepting and tolerant of Muslims. And if you actually look at what Muslims believe, you'd say, well, why on earth are you tolerant of Muslims? Um, they believe the opposite of much of what you believe. Um, but these people don't view Muslims as actually being an enemy. Who's the enemy? Well, it's Christians, and the political right is the enemy. And so Muslims are almost so far removed that it's easy for me to tolerate them because I'm not interacting with them. And so I can kind of abstractly love them from a distance. But anyone who actually gets up close to me and disagrees with me, I'm not willing to tolerate them. And what you find is the, the groups that pride themselves most on being tolerant are the quickest to eliminate someone who actually intersects with them and disagrees with them. Because they aren't really tolerant. They actually are very intolerant. Now, up until this point, I've not really considered whether tolerance is actually a good thing or even a biblical idea. So I want to take a little bit of time now to, to think about biblical teaching and how it relates to tolerance. And I want to just begin by thinking about tolerating different religious beliefs. Should we allow different religions in a society? Now, most in the West, I think, say, well, of course we should. We should have freedom of religion. If you ask, well, why should we have freedom of religion? They'd really wrestled to give a good answer. So I give two here that were given by Michael Murray and Michael Ray. The first is a pragmatic argument. Like the state and religion have different interests, different goals, and so keep them separate. Allow the state to do what the state is supposed to do. Allow religion to do what religion is supposed to do. The second argument they say is an epistemological argument. That we are more certain that Religion, tol religious tolerance is good than we are that any particular religious belief is good. 
and therefore we should have religious tolerance. Now, those arguments may be compelling to you. They may not be compelling to you. But I am certain they are not compelling to many in the world. Because many in the world say, well, my religion is part of the government. They're not actually distinct goals. They have the same goal. And so why would I want to separate them? And I'm actually much more committed that my religion's right than I am with the idea that a religion should be permitted. And so I think they rightly conclude in their discussion, the available arguments for toleration all seem to rest on principles that defenders of intolerance are unlikely to accept. So why in the West do we have this default position that tolerance is good? I think it's one of the examples that we see over and over again that we have been shaped by a Judeo-Christian worldview. That tolerance is a Christian virtue. And the reason that we automatically assume it's good is because we were shaped by this Christian perspective. And so let me try to make the case of why tolerance flows out of a Christian perspective. The first is that Christianity does say there is truth. And as I argued earlier, unless you actually say there's truth, you can't really tolerate anything. And unless you can say there's truth, you can't even say that tolerance is good. Because if there's no truth, saying tolerance is good is basically the same thing as saying my wiki is kittle, which is nonsense. Because there is no such thing as truth. You also can't say intolerance is bad. But the Bible is clear, truth exists and it can be known. And in just a few examples of this, Psalm 46.10, Be still and know that I am God. John 8.32, You will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Luke 1, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. First John 5, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And so since there is truth, we can now consider, is tolerance good? And I think a second truth from Scripture is that there is a separation of church and state. That in this period of God's dealing with man, there is a distinction between the church and state. That's not always been the case. It won't always be the case. But it is right now. That Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. And so some things, if I can say it this way, belong to God directly. And that's where the church comes into play. Our worship is God's with no human institution intermediating it, in a sense, other than the church. There are some things that are God's and yet he's put government in place to oversee them right now. Those are Caesar's. And so there is a distinction between these things. And so... I'm convinced it's wrong for the state to tell people what to believe about God. It's not the role of the state. It's also wrong for the church to execute murderers and uh, sexual people who abuse children. That's not the role of the church. That's the role of the state. They have these kinds of separate beliefs. And that as well, I think, points to the fact that Tolerance plays a different role within each of these categories. So within the church, do you tolerate unrepentant sinners? And the answer is you do not. You discipline out of the church. 1 Corinthians 5, it's actually reported there is sexual immorality among you. And of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife, 
You're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. We will not tolerate this. Later in the very same chapter, he says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexual immoral of this world, the greedy or swindlers and idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. And so in the world, are unrepentant sinners allowed to live? Generally, yes. And the church, are allowed to remain in the church? No. Because there's a distinction between these two. We understand that and we live out uh, our understanding of tolerance and acceptance in line with that. A third truth that I think the Bible points to that helps undergird a, a belief in tolerance is that discovering truth is, is done by means of persuasion. Now, what's the, the I think this way, the cleanest way to know what's true? God says it and it's clear and you believe it. Uh, are there some things that God says that's not quite as clear as others? I think so. Are there some things that God didn't directly address? Yes. So how do we know what's right in those positions? And I think scripture would point us to the work of reason and persuasion. 2 Corinthians 5.11, knowing, therefore knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Acts 17.2, Paul went in, as was his custom, on three Sabbath days. He reasoned with them from the scriptures. 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Next 15, the apostles and elders were gathered together, consider this matter, and after there had been much debate. So how do they figure out, what are we going to do with the Gentiles? Well, they had a debate, they had a discussion. They were thinking through, well, what does the scripture say? And how does this truth come to bear? And after they'd done that, then they came to a conclusion. And the only way to be able to thoughtfully consider different viewpoints is to allow them to be presented. And so in order to work best toward the truth, at least some false ideas have to be tolerated. A fourth teaching from scripture that I think is crucial in this is the inherent value of people made in God's image. That because humans are made in his image, there is such a thing as human rights. If you try to give any other explanation for human rights, you really can't. There's been a lot of effort trying to find natural grounding for human rights, and you cannot find them. And if you think, in our nation, how were human rights grounded, and what's the answer? We were endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights. And if our creator didn't give them to him, I don't know where they came from. But he did. He made us in his image. Therefore, our life has value. There is a right to property. There is a right to self-defense. These kinds of things are things taught in Scripture. And so therefore, uh, we, we need to view other humans with respect. Fifth, the reality of forgiveness. I think one reason people struggle to tolerate others is their own pride. That they tend to think, well, I would never think that way. I would never act that way. And so it's not a problem for me to dismiss you and remove you from society because you are a lesser person than I am. But in Christianity, we have a different emphasis. You've probably heard the phrase before there, but for the grace of God, go I. And if you know the context of that, he was talking about people going to the gallows. That I am, I am the kind of person that is capable of grievous sin. 
but for the grace of God. And so I do not stand where I am in any sense looking at myself. I can only look to God's grace. I live by God's grace. And when we understand and recognize that, we who have experienced grace and mercy are more likely to demonstrate it towards others. And that's what we see consistently taught in Scripture. Sixth, God is a tolerant God. Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord God, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Romans 2, 4, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? What is forbearance and patience? It's basically another way to say tolerance. Because what's true? Most of the world is wrong. And God is right. And God does not immediately wipe them out. But God tolerates them. God bears with them. God is patient with them. Romans 9, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? But God is better than tolerant. He's not only tolerant, he is loving to the point in which he sent his son to die for his enemies. To die for those who hate him, to die for those who despise him. And so in the very picture of our God as Christians, we are called to treat others with a kind of love, a love that our father demonstrated to his enemies. And therefore we are called to love our enemies. And just as Jesus loved his enemies enough that he would die for them, Christians are called to be more than tolerant, but even to love their enemies. And yet that tolerance does have an end date. That God is right now patient that is right now forbearant and tolerant because he's giving you a chance to repent. But one day, he will no longer be tolerant. He will be just. He will enact justice against all wrongs. And I think that itself allows us today to be tolerant because I don't have to right all wrongs right now. You know, it's a joke. You know, I can't get offline right now. Someone on the internet's wrong, right? And I've got to correct them. And sometimes we take that in a sense to life in general. But as Christians, we don't have to do that. God's going to right all wrongs. And so I can allow people to be wrong today. I can allow beliefs to be wrong today. God has said in this time, he's going to allow evil and, and false religions to remain. But one day he's not. And so I can wait for him to take care of that and therefore be tolerant now. And so in light of all of this, what should we think and how should we respond? I would say we should, first of all, graciously and gently, but firmly and boldly expose the bankruptcy, arrogance, and hypocrisy of the new tolerance. It's bankruptcy because it's, built on the belief that there is no truth. And if there's no truth, nothing really matters, including the idea of tolerance. And so it ends up destroying everything. It's arrogant because in this view, I am better than other people because I'm a tolerant person. People who are not tolerant are hateful, bigoted people. 
and I'm better than them. And so it creates a sense of arrogance. And yet, there's a great sense of hypocrisy. And maybe you picked up on this already, but even at the very beginning, you can't tell someone else they're wrong. And it's wrong to tell someone else they're wrong. And what are you doing at that point in time? You're saying some people are wrong. Because as a Christian, I come along and say, well, I think there is truth. And I don't hate others, but, but I do believe that God says the only way to, to come to know him is through Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that if you've not believed in the Son, you stand condemned already. Well, you're wrong to say that. Oh, wait, I thought it was hateful to say you're wrong. It's hypocritical. That's the whole idea. I will tolerate everything but intolerance. It means I'll tolerate everyone unless they disagree with me. Which means you tolerate no one. Secondly, hold fast to the truth. That because our culture elevates tolerance, there is a danger for Christians to want to win the approval of the world. And we think maybe they won't hate us if we are tolerant like they are. But how's the only way we can be tolerant like they are? If we deny the truth. If we begin to say things like, well, you know, let's not make a big deal about homosexuality. Let's just be welcoming and loving. But at that point in time, we've begun to say there is no truth. All that matters is disposition. And we need to make sure we hold fast to the truth. Jesus himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Was Jesus loving and tolerant? Perfectly. So if I'm going to be perfectly loving and tolerant, I need to emphasize the kinds of things Jesus emphasized. That also means I need to be prepared to suffer. I need to be prepared to have the world say that I'm hateful, that I'm bigoted to call me intolerant. It shouldn't surprise me because, again, Jesus was perfectly loving and tolerant and yet Jesus was hated. John 15, if the world hates you, know it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. They kept my word. They will also keep yours. And yet, as we suffer, we need to demonstrate the kind of love that undermines all the accusations of hatefulness and intolerance. First Peter 3, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. I've said this before, I, I try to remind myself of this regularly as well. And in a sense, the people who know me, my neighbors, family, friends, but I want them to say, he's a hateful, bigoted person, but he's the most loving, hateful, bigoted person I know. I know he's hateful and bigoted because he believes these things, but he's so kind. He's so giving. 
He's so ready to serve others. He's so concerned about others' needs. And so it seems strange to me that this person I know is hateful and bigoted, is kind and loving and gracious. That's what I think we want to be as Christians in this world. And finally, allow this to cause us to long for Jesus to return. There is, I think rightly, a concern and a desire for our nation and our culture because we live here, our children are going to live here. I don't think we should long to see massive persecution. I don't think that's a biblical mindset at all. I think we don't shy away from it if it comes, but I don't think we also look for it. I think we ask that Lord would keep us from wicked and unreasonable men. We ask and pray for government to allow us to live quiet and peaceful lives. And yet, there's no guarantee that Christianity will be able to continue to thrive in this way in America. And as much as that might cause us to sorrow, it cannot ultimately destroy our hope and joy. Because this is not our home. We are looking for a city that is to come. Whose builder and maker is God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a patient and tolerant God. But we know that we have needed that in our own lives and all the ways in which we have failed you. And yet you have shown us grace and mercy. You've been long-suffering toward us. And Lord, we pray that we might demonstrate that patience and long-suffering toward others. Help us never to compromise the truth. Help us never to shy away from being bold with the truth. And yet help us to do so always with gentleness and respect. And Lord, we do pray that you might allow the gospel in your church to have freedom here in this nation for years to come, to continue to have freedom to, to proclaim your gospel, to have the means to, to help support missionaries to go throughout this world to proclaim the gospel. And yet, Lord, help us always to love heaven more than we love this earth. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.